All right, guys, uh, humor me a little bit because I'm new here. I want you to turn to the person next to you and just tell them who one of your heroes in life is, really quick. One of your heroes in life. Come on, I know you got one. Well, I didn't hear anybody say Chan, um, which is a little disquieting, guys. He's sitting right here. Come on. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, well, uh, guys, my name's David. Uh, I wore my best black t-shirt for this today. Uh, I'm really excited for this. And um, uh, I married out of my league uh, to my beautiful wife, Abigail, uh, down here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Blue Ridge native. Um, I went to Fannin County High School, graduated in 2012, went on to Liberty University, graduated from there in 2016 and 18. And uh, you learn a lot of stuff uh, going through school, right? You take a lot of classes, you listen to a lot of lectures, you read a lot of books uh, along the way. And the thing about uh, school is, is you forget a lot of that stuff as time goes on. You spend a lot of time learning it, but it, it goes out. But I found that in life, the things that kind of stick with you the most uh, are, are lessons, these kind of moments um, that you pick up on from your heroes in life. It can be like a hero from history. It can be a hero um, from your personal life. It can be someone that you just look up to that you've never met uh, before. But I want to tell you guys about uh, uh, one of my heroes. And I, actually, I think I have a picture of her I want to show you. Uh, this is my great aunt Leela uh, right here on the right. Um, and by God's grace, she will turn 100 years old uh, this summer. Um, she is an incredible Lady, this is actually a picture of her um, at the anniversary of uh, D-Day. She went over uh, to France and Normandy, where um, she was celebrated um, for her efforts um, in World War II. She was part of uh, the first medical team that actually landed at Omaha Beach during the D-Day invasion. She was part of uh, a team of women who cared for the soldiers who were injured in that initial fight, and then she went on to care for survivors uh, who came out of the concentration camps in Buchenwald. Uh, in Germany. She is just an incredible, incredible uh, lady. Um, and she is part of what historians um, have dubbed the greatest generation, which if you're my age, the greatest generation is like this time uh, that we look to in history that almost feels like this golden era of unity um, in the history of America. And uh, I can remember um, she came and visited us here uh, from her home uh, in Colorado. She grew up here. She's a Blue Ridge native uh, too, but she lives out in Colorado now. And she came and visited way back in 2016. Uh, and I can remember we were eating at uh, Pete's Place because, you know, all profound moments in life happen at Pete's Place. Um, so if you're looking for like a profound moment, maybe uh, go schedule a lunch to go to Pete's Place. Uh, and I can remember kind of following the 2016 election, um, I was talking to her about, you know, man, we, it seems like we're in such a tough spot. Uh, as a country right now. It seems like we are just so disunified. It seems that there is just e emotions and tempers and everything is just flaring. It seems like we're at an all-time high uh, right now. And I just asked her what she thought about that. As someone who was part of the greatest generation, as someone who was part of like, you know, probably the great, one of the greatest moments of unity that our country has ever felt. And I'll never forget uh, what she told me that day in Pete's place. She said, back then, we all knew who the enemy was. So we came together to defeat the enemy. Today, we forgot who the real enemy is, so we have settled for fighting each other. And I wish that we could say that things were better since our conversation six years ago at Pete's Place. But actually, I think it's worse. In fact, social scientists tell us that we're the most divided that we have been since the Civil War. Uh, recently, the International Institute for Democracy, which is kind of like this big think tank group um, that measures uh, all kinds of different things, they recently stated that the greatest threat that we face 
in the United States in the coming years is not COVID, it's not inflation, it's not supply chains, and it's not extreme weather, but it's what they call a backsliding democracy. Now, you guys that grew up in church know exactly what that word backsliding means, but basically what they mean is if we don't make changes soon to how we view our neighbors, to how we view the people that live across the street from us, if we don't take care of this kind of social erosion uh, that we see, that we may reach something called runaway polarization, which means that we might become so disunified in our country that we can actually never be unified again. And I wish that I could say that if you look at stats in the church, that it was better. But I'm afraid it isn't. Barna recently surveyed pastors in America on if they were considering quitting ministry full-time altogether, not going to a different church, not considering stepping down to part-time, not considering going to some other type of uh, Christian ministry. We're talking quitting altogether, walking away from ministry. 38% of pastors in America said that they wanted to quit forever and hang it up. One of the top reasons they stated the division in the church. Church, can I tell you right now that it's much easier to slam someone online than it is to go out, to go across the street and actually talk to your neighbor? And there's all this data out there that basically says that, that loneliness, isol- isolation, polarization, tribalism, all of these words, they're all threads that are woven into the same rope that we see day in and day out. And we can't possibly cover all those statistics and data today, but just really briefly, uh, right now we're seeing massive levels of loneliness in our country. The Harvard Business Study stated that 38% of Americans feel seriously lonely and that they have zero friends, zero friends. They have no one that they can turn to, that they can talk to, that they feel like is a friend. And in that same study, they included that 61% uh, of young adults and 51% of mothers with children feel exactly the same way. And without getting too deep into it, guys, the lonelier that we become, the more drawn we are to online communities. And online communities is kind of a misnomer because real community is when someone knows you face-to-face. They know your flaws, they know what you're good at, they know your strengths, and they know your weaknesses. Online, you can hide all that, you can shield all that, you can make it exactly whatever it is that you want it to be. But basically, the gist is, the more time that you spend online, the more likely you are to be lonely. And the lonelier you are, the more likely you actually are to become more polarized and to be more against your neighbor than to be before them, and the more disunified you become. In fact, one of our senators was actually recently talking about this, um, and I'm not going to mention their uh, name because if you know this senator and you know what political party they are, depending where you are on the political spectrum, you might actually stop listening to me, and we're still in the beginning of my sermon, and I want you to hear the rest of it, you know? But this individual said this, they said, in the siloed or isolated worlds cable television, of ideological punditry, campus politics, and social media. People find a sense of community in the polarized tribes forming on the left and the right in America. Essentially, people locate their sense of us through contempt peddled about them on the other side of the political spectrum. Did you catch that? What he's saying is people get their sense of us their sense of belonging, their sense of identity, community, not from God right now, but from hating whoever them is in their mind or whoever them is that they're being told by all these different outlets, whether it's the media, whether it's social media, whatever it is. Church, have we forgotten who the enemy is? Have we settled just for fighting each other instead? Because our enemy, the devil, he's always had the same game plan. 
to divide us, to break us apart, to break apart families, to turn us on isolation so that we will turn on each other. Isn't that exactly what happened in the garden? Through lies, he deceived Eve. She got Adam roped in, which he should not have allowed, but he did. Then Adam turned and blamed Eve. And just like that, the first family was divided against each other and has been the same ever since. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What does he mean by that? He's saying our struggle is not against the people, the humans that are around us, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces and the heavenly realms. Guys, we have to stop fighting each other and we have to remember who the real enemy is and we have to fight him. So, is there a practice from the way of Jesus, from his life, from his teaching, that can bring us together? Is there a practice from Jesus' life that can actually knit us together and make us stronger than we were before? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus that can bring us back into unity? Yes, I think that there is. In fact, I think that our greatest weapon right now in the fight against the devil, in the fight against disunity, is family. It's family. And would you pray with me that the Holy Spirit would just open us to this teaching this morning, open us to this idea of family. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are Lord. You're the Lord of our life. You're the Lord of our church. Lord, this morning, through your Holy Spirit, would you help us understand this word? God, would you help us hear this word and not hear it in such a way that it just vibrates our eardrums, but would you help us hear it in a way that it becomes embedded in our hearts and our souls and our minds? Jesus, would you fill me this morning? Holy Spirit, would you fill me this morning? God, would you help me step out of the way and you step in? God, I can't bring anyone from death to life and I can't move anyone's heart, but you can. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do that this morning. In the power of Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you guys got your copy of God's word, flip or tap your way over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 for me. We're gonna go... Verse 46 through 50. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, we're gonna have it available for you on screen coming up right behind me. But uh, just a little context if you're not familiar with what's going on in Matthew chapter 12. But at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, uh, he's getting a little bit of celebrity status. Uh, So wherever he goes, there is a large crowd of people. Um, Some scholars say hundreds, some uh, even estimate up to thousands of people are coming out to hear Jesus' teaching. They're coming out to see him do miracles. They are bringing their friends, their family. Everyone is crowding around and pressing in. So we're gonna zoom in here at the end of Matthew chapter 12. Uh, And we're gonna see uh, an instance where Jesus' family is actually trying to come talk to him. They're trying to press in. They're trying to get around this crowd, um, but they're not able to do so. So let's just jump in right here in verse 46. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd. So again, in your mind, try to imagine hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people out in this big, wide open space, very crowded, very hot, very pressed together. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told them, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak with you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples who would have been right there in the front, they would have been on the front row, the closest inner circle in this big crowd of people pointing to his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
Now, verse 48 is obviously a rhetorical statement. Obviously, Jesus knows that his biological mother is Mary. He knows that his biological siblings are James and Jude. Right off the bat, we need to recognize that there is something significant going on in this text. That Jesus points to his disciples and he calls them brothers and sisters. The word for that in Greek is adelphoi. It is the most commonly used term in the New Testament for how believers relate to one another. In fact, it occurs 342 times in just the short New Testament. Second, Jesus refers to God through his most common moniker for him, which is what? Father. Jesus is painting a picture for us in just a few words of what true family is but not family in the way that we would think of like biologically related or blood related family. Jesus says that his family is everyone who will do the will of the father. Now listen, this is, doesn't seem like this is that you know crazy or out of the box for us or whatever, but in Jesus' time, this would have been an extremely radical thing uh, to say for his, his place in history and his culture. So if you're like not into watching the Discovery Channel for fun, uh, like you know, if you're not like a nerd kind of like me, um, just give me a minute and I'm gonna kind of just drop some content on you and then I promise we're gonna circle back uh, on this. So if anyone starts to zone out, you can just elbow him for me in Jesus' name. Um, <laughs> so listen. So Jesus lived in what's called a collectivist society. Collectivist society. All right, and sociologists, basically, they say there are two types of societies. There's a collectivist society, and there's a society uh, of the individualistic. All right, so collectivist, individualistic. A collectivist society puts the needs of the entire group or the entire collection of people ahead of the needs of the individual, meaning everyone makes choices based on what is best for the group, what is best for the collective. In Jesus' time and culture, this would have been your family. You would have always made choices based on what was best for your biological family, not yourself. So kind of contemporary examples of, you know, a collectivist society would be like um, South Korea uh, or a lot of African cultures. Um, And then individualistic societies, the difference is, is individualistic societies, we put the needs of the individual before the group. And we often don't even feel responsible uh, for the group. They make decisions based on whatever is best for the individual. You guys kind of see the difference between this and individualistic society. You decide what's best for you, and that is chief over anything else. So a great example of this is America <laughs> or any other kind of, kind of 21st century Western culture. All right, so that's kind of the first piece to remember is Jesus lived in a collectivist uh, society. Second, Jesus lived in a patrilineal society. Now that's a, a really big word that we throw out, but listen, all that means is that you would have traced your family through the paternal side of your family. Paternal just is talking about your dad's side or your father's side, that your, your lineage would have been traced through the paternal side of your family. This is why if you ever open up your Bible, you get to those really uh, boring lineages, which are really not that boring once you start to understand what's going on. It'll say, this is so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, because in their time, that's how you tracked who your true family was. It was tracked through whoever your father uh, was in a patriarchal uh, society in ancient cultures, um, marriages were arranged in order again to help the family. So I say all that to say that in their time in their life, the most important relationship to them would have not been their spouse. You know, today in America, we probably think the most important person in my life, the person I'm most committed to, that I have to look out for, is my spouse. But for them, it wasn't that. It was your siblings, your brothers, and your sisters. In their time, and their culture, the most important people, the people that you felt the most responsible for would have been your sibling, your brother and your sister. Why? Because that's the only other person who came from the same womb as you do. 
That's just the way that they viewed it. So for Jesus to define family as anyone who would do God's will was massively, massively breaking away from the status quo. But today, you know, we might think like, that's not such a big deal. Like, what's the big deal about that? But in that time, in a massively ethnocentric world where your ethnicity really, really mattered for who you were in a patrilineal society to say that people from any race, from any social class, from any economic background was your family was absolutely unthinkable. You would never, never say that. Still today, in ultra-Orthodox Jewish settings, like that Jesus lived in. If you try to break away from your biological family, if you try to go off on your own, if you try to make you know, any type of choice for yourself that doesn't benefit the family, they will hold a funeral for you. And the point I'm making is Jesus didn't say, be more individualistic. He kept the collective part in view, make decisions on what's best for the family. But he said, expand your definition for what family is, past blood to anyone who follows God. Here is Jesus pointing to his disciples in the front row saying, this is what the new family looks like. Jesus' family consisted of people from all across the political spectrum of his day, from all across the ethnic spectrum. People who were blue collar, white collar, prostitutes, slaves, thieves, business owners, rich and poor. Church, this is no ordinary family that we are joining a part of. This is every walk of life, every background, every type of person there is. That is what Jesus's family is, and that is what he's trying to communicate us. And this should come as no surprise to us. Let me explain. Uh, Philip Yancey, uh, we have this quote coming on screen for you guys. Philip Yancey once asked when summarized, you know, how, how would you summarize the whole Bible in one sentence? And he said, God gets his family back, which I really like, because think about it. The opening pages of the Bible start with God putting Adam and Eve in the garden and telling them to start a family, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Then that family breaks down, so he restarts the project with another family, Noah's family. Then if you keep flipping through the opening pages of Genesis, you get this break in the actions in Genesis chapter 10, where we get this really, really long uh, lineage that you probably skipped over in your one-year reading Bible plan. Um, But if you pay close attention to all those names in Genesis chapter 10, and you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll find out that all of the children in Genesis chapter 10 grow up, and then their uh, children become countries, and then those countries start fighting each other. They go to war with each other. And this is like the whole plot line of the Old Testament uh, that they are gonna keep fighting. And then God promised Abraham uh, that his family was gonna represent the family of God. And then through that, they were gonna bless all the families. They were gonna bless all the nation through the blessing that he was gonna give to his family. But the family drama, the fighting, the warring, it goes on for 39 books of content, the entire Old Testament. You thought your family was dysfunctional. So God sends his family He sends his son, Jesus, to rescue the human family. And Jesus restarts the project with the 12 disciples symbolically rebooting the 12 tribes and telling them to go forth and make disciples, reminiscent of go forth and multiply. And the story of the Bible ends with every tribe, every tongue, every nation singing below the lamb that was slain in place and the place that Jesus is gonna wipe away every tear. Guys, God does not give up on family. It's his plan A, and it's always been his plan A. And there's this idea that's becoming more and more pervasive that, you know, I don't really need to, to go to church to follow Jesus. Like, I, you know, at the very least, I don't need to be tightly connect, connected 
to a church. I don't need to be in a small group. I don't need to be, you know, know other people. I can kind of just come in and out whenever I feel like, um, you know, whenever the weather's nice and, and that'll be great. And the problem with that line of thinking is, is you're not gonna find that in the New Testament. And you're not gonna find that in the teachings of Jesus. See, the New Testament, it uses the term family of God and church almost interchangeably, minus a few exceptions in Ephesians and 1 Peter, uh, whenever they're talking about husbands and wives and children and kind of instructions to the nuclear family. But even then, even then, Paul and Peter, in the backdrop of their mind, they're thinking that family is more than just blood. It's widows, it's orphans, it's singles, it's slaves, it's foreigners, it's everyone, because God's family is more than just the people who are attached to us by biology, but it is everyone who will call Jesus Jesus, their savior. So when we try to live outside of God's design, when we try to live outside of his plan for family, we are at least settling for a lesser experience in following Jesus. And at most, we are settling for a counterfeit lie from the enemy. God made us and he designed us to live in family, but we have to expand our definition of family to match his. There is no entity Guys, in the world that can do as much to heal us, as much to form us, and as much to encourage us as family. And honestly, there's nothing more ordinary than families. I mean, look around, they're everywhere. All of you guys came from a family in some way or another. You know, growing up, I heard a lot of really popular people tell me this phrase. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Anybody ever heard that before? You know, I think that might be true for some people. But I think most often God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things with extraordinary love to bring about transformation. Ordinary family stuff like Sunday night dinners, they're rhythmic, they're unexciting, but they're bonding. Stuff like living side by side, doing the mundane things in life with love, cutting the grass, taking out the trash, doing the dishes. Stuff like answering the phone, even when you really don't want to, when you see that name pop up on your phone and you think, I really, really wanna hit decline, but you think, you know what? It's family. I've gotta answer it. Stuff like receiving love from family, even when you are at your absolute worst and you do not deserve love at all and you know it, but they still welcome you back in. See, guys, I think that family is our greatest tool for sharing the gospel in 2022. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Think of it like, uh, they will know you are a part of my family by the way you love one another. Sound like something a parent might say to their kids? I think the greatest apologetic that we can have right now isn't some argument for the existence of God, although I fully believe that those have their place. I think it's being united right now when it's so popular and it's so much easier to be divided. Matt Chandler said last year that he thinks the best apologetic the church can have in 2022 is just don't be a jerk. <laughs> don't be a jerk at church. Don't be a jerk on Facebook. You ever think people look at us absolutely just ripping each other online and think, why would I ever wanna go to that church? Because they click on your profile and they think, what is this person about? And then all of a sudden your likes pop up and it's like, this person likes, you know, this person, this sport, and then the Ridge Community Church. But here they are slamming all these people online. Why would I wanna go be a part of that? I can get that anywhere. I heard a lot of people say, 
Church isn't a building. It's a people. Then why do we continue to invite people to a building for an hour a week and not invite them into our lives? Don't get me wrong. I think you should invite them to the worship gathering, but don't just invite them here. It's not less than that. It's that and more. Invite them into your life. Invite them into your home. Invite them over for lunch. What if the slow slide in the secularism that we see all around us isn't because the church doesn't have the right lights or we don't play the right music or we don't have the right artwork? What if it's because we have neglected and left behind our most basic belief of loving other people with real, tangible, felt, hospitable love? What if it's because we left behind church lunch on Sundays? What if it's because we left behind inviting people over for a Sunday night dinner? What if it's because we left behind just going across the street and introducing yourself? Church, have we forgotten who the real enemy is? Because we can't fight this enemy with planes, tanks, and bullets. No, we fight him with unity, hospitality, taco nights, game nights, and familial love. Now, I recognize that the problem with family is, well, it's family. Family can be annoying, apathetic, underwhelming, hurtful, disappointing, dysfunctional, obnoxious, and expensive. And I recognize that it has just as much of an ability to tear us down and hurt us. Some of our deepest wounds in life, some of those words that seem like they are burned into your soul, some of those moments that you feel like you just cannot forget, that you can't shake, come from instances with your family. They come from words that people in your family, the people who are supposed to be closest to you, said that to you. And for some of you, that's your church family too, not just your biological family. And if that's you, I just wanna say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the church did that. And honestly, at the Ridge, we can't fix every single church out there, but what we can say is our church won't be like that. And the thing is, is Jesus didn't give up on family. The way he viewed family, which was the church, is, which is the main point which I am repeatedly and purposefully making to you, that church and family are one and the same in Jesus' mind. The church is a family and as an institution in Jesus' time. You guys know we just did 1 Corinthians, right, for like 600 weeks, okay? <laughs> what was some of the stuff that the church struggled with? They were dysfunctional, they were racist, they were incestuous at some points, they were greedy, they were arrogant and corrupt, just to name a few. And you know what? Jesus didn't shy away from their flaws. He didn't minimize them. He didn't make excuse for them. Yet he continued not to give up on people and he continued to lead his disciples to the two forms of organized worship in his day, the synagogue and the temple. Guys, Jesus used family to heal the family, to bring unity, to bring his family to the temple when the temple would not go to those people. He brought family to them and then he brought them in. And the thing about family is, is none of you in here chose which family you would be born into, right? Nobody decides what family they're born into. But with family, you choose how you participate in family. How do you participate in family? 
Are you the uncle that shows up and wrecks Thanksgiving dinner by bringing up whatever divisive political issue you heard about on the radio on the drive-in? Are you the sister that only shows up for holidays and otherwise is completely unengaged with the family? Are you the son that moved away and keeps the family name but in every other way is disconnected from the family? Or are you the grandmother that counts off the days until Christmas when you can gather everyone in your home for the renowned family meal? Are you the dad who drove across the country to help your son when they were in dire need and no one else could go? Are you the mom and the dad who value instilling character into your children over a family that looks perfect on Instagram but is otherwise spiritually bankrupt? Church, how are you participating in this family? Because the family of God, this family, is about loving God, loving people, and making a difference. Here's some ways I think that you can participate. Number one, you can drop your expectations. Drop your expectations. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his now seminal work uh, on community called Life Together, uh, he, he says that the greatest threat that we have to community is actually our ideal of community, is whenever we approach a community with an idea of what it should be like. Because listen, the idea of what your family, what your community, what your small group, what your church should be like is fantasy. It's not real. It's not the actual family that you have, which is reality, which is real, which is right in front of you. And when we allow what's imaginary and we allow our idea to overcome and to overpower that, we short circuit right up front our ability to actually enjoy and actually learn and actually grow from the people that God has given us that are right in front of us. Because church is great and community is great, but it is often messy and incomplete. It's hopeful, well-intentioned, but sometimes it can be flaky. It can be quirky, but good-hearted. And until we realize that we have to accept the people around us for who they are, for who God made them to be, and not try to make them live up to this imaginary standard in our mind, we cannot grow. Until you can love someone for who they are, despite all of their flaws, until you can love them for the only reason being that they are God's son or they are God's daughter, we are dead in the water. Two, you can broaden your circle because we're not an ordinary family. This family is truly for everyone, even the people that you may not like. You may not agree with them, or even if you're honest, you kind of hate them. But the thing about family is, is you don't choose your siblings. And we're all long lost brothers and sisters here. And sometimes loving your sibling, it just takes endurance and it just takes bearing with them when it's hard. And the New Testament doesn't shy away from that. Any of you guys who have ever read Paul's letters in the New Testament will recognize over and over. What does he say at the end of it? Just stick with them. Just endure. Just bear with them. Because there's reward on the other side. There are people who you think, uh, who you might think you are the least likely person to get along with. Like, there are people that you might show up to a small group and you might look at that person and think, no way, not them. I'm not going to get along with them. And, you know, I started thinking about this, uh, and, you know, what it really made me think about is Mark. Not like Mark in the Bible, like Mark, you know, that is sitting right over here and, you know, plays the guitar for us. Uh, when I first, uh, you know, came here, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I didn't give Mark a chance. I really didn't. Um, and I think it's because I have, like, a little bit of bias in my heart. In college, all my roommates were musicians, 
uh, and they would all stay up really late. They would keep me up late because they'd be playing, you know, their instruments or whatever, practicing at 1 a.m. for whatever reason, because that's when inspiration hits. Um, <laughs> and they'd be like worried about their like hair and then like their outfits. And it was just like, everything was really emotional. And I just like, you know, I went through years of that and I was just like, you know, every musician is like this. Like I just have this, this baseline bias, which is wrong, but I had it. So I was like, that was strike one uh, for Mark. And then in strike two, I found out he was from Florida. And I was like, you know, as a Blue Ridge native, I'm, just, I'm sorry guys, we shouldn't have that. We shouldn't have that, but strike two. And then like, I found out Mark used to be in a rock band. And I was like, that's three strikes. Like no way that we're gonna, like, this is just not gonna work. Uh, between us, but you know what? I'm gonna be like Jesus and I'm gonna just do it, you know? Um, But I got to know Mark. I had a conversation with Mark. We went out and we had some lunches and you know what? I love Mark. Mark is a great guy, despite what maybe you guys might think. Uh, (laughs) He's a fantastic guy, no, for real. And and it's like, we we are just like on the same wavelength with a lot of stuff. We think uh, about uh, stuff kind of in the same circles and a lot of like that. And I'll say that like Mark, our friendship is like one of the most enriching things that I have in my life right now. But if I would have allowed my viewpoint up front to continue to dominate that, I would be robbing myself of how God wants to grow me in this season. You might also show up to group or to church and you might see someone who think, that person's gonna be a lot of work. <laughs> it's, gonna t- it's gonna take a lot. That person's gonna drag me down. It's gonna take a lot of effort to love that person. And uh, here's what I wanna say. I, wanna t- I told you guys a, a story about one of my family members um, up front, and I wanna tell you one more uh, as we get ready to close out uh, here. And this is my Uncle Jeff. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, he, he went to be with the Lord uh, last year, and um, <clears throat> my Uncle Jeff uh, lived with this condition. Um, I think the technical term for it is he was a stinker uh, <laughs> his entire life, but it was really uh, uh, difficult. In all seriousness, my my uncle lived his whole life with uh, Down syndrome. So uh, caring for Jeff um, was always took extra effort. Anytime we wanted to go anywhere, it always took uh, a lot of extra effort, a lot of extra preparations and stuff like that. Um, It took a a lot more work. And you can ask anybody who is a special needs person uh, in their family, and they'll tell you that having someone in special needs, it's a lot of effort. It takes a lot of uh, work sometimes, uh, more, more so uh, than it normally would. But I promise what I'm telling you and what they'll tell you is it is so, so, so worth it. That there was no other member of our family than Jeff that brought our family more joy, brought our family more happiness, brought our family together and made us more united than he did. So don't look at the person in your community and think they're gonna take a lot of work and think that there's nothing that you can gain from it on the other side. My point in saying this is often the person that you are counting out can be your greatest opportunity for growth, that their story can be your greatest catalyst for what God might have for you in this season. And the last thing I wanna say is just do what the family does. Do what the family does. That's how we use unity to fight disunity. Uh, And I wanna tell you guys just maybe about some organic suggestions really quick. And what I mean by organic is is I can't possibly decide every single thing that you're gonna do uh, throughout your week. I can't organize every opportunity for you, but here are some ideas. Uh, Maybe just meet up with someone this week for lunch. Like if you've never done this before, you've you've never done it, you know, find someone uh, from church that you don't really know and just ask them to to set up a lunchtime uh, with you. If that's uh, a little too easy for you, maybe set up a regular rhythm to share lunch with somebody. Share lunch with somebody that you know. 
uh, and then use that as an opportunity to, to grow and to reflect with them. Don't set an agenda. The only agenda is to eat and to talk. Uh, and then finally, if you're like, man, that's super easy. I'm ready for like stretch practice, advanced uh, course. Uh, I would invite you to host people in your home regularly, once a week. Like set up that taco night, set up that Sunday night meal and regularly invite people over, make it an open invitation. Whoever wants to come can come. If two people come, that's great. If one person comes, that's great. If 10 people come, that's even better. Set up that regular open invitation to invite and to host people into your home. How else are they gonna see what the family of God is really like if you don't let them in to where the family of God lives? Then finally, we have a lot of organized opportunities you can take for, stuff that we've already structured, stuff we already have in place. You could take a class, these equipping classes we've been talking about. It's a great way to get connected, to fight this unity, get to know other people around you. Starting point would be a fantastic class because it's a class about conversations about doctrine. You can join a group. If you've never been into a journey group before, I'm just gonna be frank with you, like you're missing out, like you're settling for less than what you could have if you've never been in a group. So you could join a group. Uh, if you know, you've been thinking, man, I could really host a group. Like I have this really great house and I was looking in my living room the other day and thinking, you know what would look great in here as a journey group. Um, like that could be you, you know, you could, you could do that. Uh, or you could lead a group, guys. We need more leaders. We need more and more leaders. Like the need that we have for people to get in community is great, but our cells that we have to offer are getting fewer and fewer. We need more uh, opportunities for people to do. And then finally, like, you know, you can be the family that you wish you had. Like if this whole time I've been talking about family and you're thinking like, gosh, this is just painful. It's bringing up a lot of stuff from childhood. Like you could be the family you wish that you had. So here's what I want us to do, guys, is everyone just uh, bow your heads with me and we're just gonna pray really quick. And over the next couple minutes, I would just ask you to pray. God, how do you want me to participate in family? Lord, we know that the desire of your heart is for us to come into your family. Lord, I just pray for anyone in this room who hasn't made that decision yet, that the sun wouldn't go down today until they've made that decision, until they've decided to come sit at your table and to link arms and unite with these brothers and sisters and discover the long lost family they never had. Lord, we know that that is only available through your sacrifice, that you died so that we could truly live but not live just to do nothing, but to live in this family. Lord, I pray we would believe that and we would embrace that. And I pray that you would show us our next step. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name, amen.